This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Lili Nishmas, my father, Nechemi Moshe Ben Shalom, who was Nifter last Sunday. If anyone's interested, there's a Hesped that I said for my father. It's available. Send me an email, Rebbe at the Shmuz.com, R E B B E at the Shmuz, T H E S H M U Z.com. I think it's well worth hearing. He was a very, very unique and great man. The question we have to deal with now is Tishabov. And the world that we're living in seems to be very quickly spiraling out of control. Obviously, the situation in Eretz Yisrael, obviously, the fact that there are 1.6 million Muslims and a mere 30% are radical, meaning to say no more than 350 million or so Muslims in the world feel that suicide bombing is appropriate. Things like 9-11, destroying the World Trade Center was right to do. So when you look at the world and you see France cheering them on, condoning what they're doing, condemning Israel, when you see England doing similar things, and when you see a world that's quickly spiraling into a very, very deep abyss with ISIS, Hamas, Hezbollah, an entire militant stance, the question we need to ask is, what is the message for us? What are we supposed to take from this? What does Hashem want us to learn from this? And I think there's a very clear message and a very clear way of understanding it. Midian were ancient enemies of the Jewish people. They hired Bilam to destroy the Jewish people. He tried to curse them. He failed. Bilam gave him an Eitzah. Let me give you a piece of advice. Their God hates illicit relations. Their God has a way of running the world, and their God wants a particular way of doing things. With Bilam's advice, the Benos Moab, the daughters of Moab, seduced the Jewish men, and 24,000 men died. And it was a horrible, horrible moment in the Jewish people's existence. And at the end of Moshe Beno's life, Hashem says to Moshe, Take revenge. Take the revenge of the Bnei Yisrael. Look what those people have done to you. Look what they've done to your nation. Take the revenge of the Bnei Yisrael from Midian. And Moshe Rabbeinu gathers together the Jewish people and he says, Take revenge. But he changes the message. He doesn't say, Take the revenge of the Jewish people. He doesn't say, Take your revenge. And they come, Nikmas Hashem, take Hashem's revenge. And Rashi points out why it is that Moshe changed the message. Sha'omid Kinegi Yisrael, Ka'omid Negi Akarish Baruchu. Whoever opposes the Jewish people, whoever fights against the Jews, is fighting against Hashem. And I'd like to ask you a very obvious question on that Rashi. It doesn't seem to be correct, it doesn't seem to be true. Midian had a problem with the Jews. Midian hated the Jewish people. Moab hated the Jewish people. It wasn't Hashem, it wasn't God, it wasn't ideology, it was the Jews. Why does Moshe Rabbeinu change the message? Hashem told him, take the revenge of the Jewish people. Moshe says, it's not our revenge. They were fighting against Hashem. It doesn't seem to be true. 
And to answer this, let's focus on something interesting. One of the secrets of successful dieting is to drink eight cups of water a day. Why is that a very handy piece of advice if you'd like to lose weight? Because many times people are hungry, but they misidentify what's really going on. They're not hungry for food. There's an emptiness. There's a yearning. Really what's happening is physiologically they're thirsty. But they misidentify that sense. There's a certain emptiness, and they eat to fill it. But they're not really satisfied because they're not really hungry. They're really thirsty. So they eat and overeat. And one of the wise pieces of advice, if you're dieting, is make sure that you drink a lot of water. It flushes out your system, but more importantly, you'll be sated. You won't have false hunger. And I think that's a very important episode that people sometimes miss. Emotional intelligence means being able to recognize the state of emotions that you are experiencing. Knowing how to identify what you're feeling, what you're experiencing, what are your triggers, and what you can do to change them. And many people are ignorant to what really causes them to get angry, to what really causes them to feel hurt. And emotional intelligence is based on studying yourself and understanding your inner workings more deeply. With that as a background, let me ask you an interesting question. Here's the question. Everything in society changes. Throughout history, everything changes. Systems of government, belief systems, culture, dress, language. You study a thousand years of history, and you'll see radical changes. There's only one constant. The only constant that you'll see throughout hundreds of years, throughout thousands of years, is the fact that everyone hates the Jew. Everything else changes. Everything else, movements come and go, ideologies pass with time, system of governments come, but rich or poor, powerful or weak, dominant or oppressed, the Jew is always hated. And it's universal. It's in every culture, in all languages, in all countries, and it's the only constant in all of history. And we are blamed for the bubonic plague, we poison wells, we kill babies to use their blood for amatza, we own the banks, we killed someone's God. And I have a very simple question. Why does everyone hate the Jew? For the most part, Jews are very loyal citizens, they're industrious, they don't murder, pillage, rape. Every society that has a Jewish presence, the society flourishes. The Jews become a prominent feature in the building up of that society. No sooner does peace reign than that nation turns against the Jews, either murder them or expel them. That society then falls down and crumbles. But it happens generation after generation. And the question I think we need to address is, gee golly, why? So, let me share with you some of the theories. One theory is economic. We hate the Jews because they possess too much wealth and power. Not a bad reason to want to annihilate a person or a people. We hate Jews because they arrogantly claim that they're the chosen people. Not a bad reason to gas men, women, and children. Jews are a convenient group because they're the scapegoat. Blame for our troubles. Okay. We hate the Jews because they killed our God. That's a pretty good reason to hate people. We hate the Jews because they're different than us. And if you study social history, 
And then if you study works of sociology, you'll find many, many theories, many, many reasons why people hate the Jews. But here's the problem. In one country, the Jews are despised for being too powerful. Then in another country, they're trampled on for being too weak. They're segregated into ghettos and they're accused of being separatists. Capitalists accuse them of being communists. Communists accuse them of being capitalists. They're hated for killing one religion's God. Then another religion who doesn't even believe in that God also hates them equally. And if you study each of these theories one by one, you'll find none of them answer the question. And that is a question I think we need to understand the answer to. If you would like to know the why behind thousands of years of Jew hatred, the next time they take out a Torah, when you're in shul, just listen carefully to the words. Before we open our Kodesh, we say the words that Moshe Rabbeinu said, Hashem, when we're lifting up the Aaron, Moshe said, Kuma Hashem, Hashem, rise up, scatter your enemies, and Rashi there is bothered by the problem. Moshe Rabbeinu knew that the Jewish people were in the Midbar, they were encamped in the desert, they were about to travel. Before they traveled, Moshe Rabbeinu said these words, Hashem, arise, strike the enemies, strike your enemies from our path. But the problem is they weren't enemies of Hashem. They were enemies of the Jewish people. They were going to kill the Jews. Says Rashi exactly this point. Whoever hates a Jew hates Hashem. What Rashi is telling us is, much like you could be thirsty and not recognize it. You could think you're hungry, but you're not misidentifying what's really going on. Much like you could not understand why you're angry. You could have generations of Jew haters who can't quite nail it. They can't quite identify the problem, but Rashi's telling us exactly the problem. When they see the Jew, they see Hashem. It's the beard, it's the payas, it's the tzitzit, it's the tillin. It's the fact that you are given the Torah. You are God's people and I hate God. And the war that we've been fighting, the oppression that we've suffered for now 2,000 years, and it's really a lot longer than that, has been for one reason, because we are Hashem's people, and it's a hatred against HaKadosh Baruch Hu, it's a hatred against Hashem. And if this sounds like ancient tales, yesteryear, let's look at our current situation. Right now, there's a temporary ceasefire. Okay. But I have a very fundamental question that I would like to ask. There's a whole big conflict in Gaza with Israel, maybe there's some other problems in the north, with Hezbollah, I don't know. My question is very simple. Who's right and who's wrong? That's a good question to ask, right? Is Israel right? Are the Palestinians right? Are the Muslims right? Are the Jews? Who's right? Now, don't tell me your opinion. You're obviously Jewish. You're obviously biased. Don't go ask the Palestinians. Don't ask the Muslims, because they're also biased. So whenever you have this kind of moral dilemma, whenever you want to get to the truth, what do you have to do? The only way you could do this is you have to find an uninterested party, a neutral party, someone who's not in the fray, someone who's not in the war, find yourself a neutral party, and the wider and larger the body is, the more obviously you're going to get to the truth. So let's do that. Let us ask the question, who's right, who's wrong, and let's find the most impartial, objective party we can, with the largest body imaginable, and they will tell us the answer. I can think of no body, no organization more impartial 
and more widespread than the United Nations. The United Nations was formed in 1945 with one objective, world peace. After World War II, it was obvious that mankind could destroy themselves. And the nations of the world gathered together with one objective. Let us form what was the League of Nations, now a new gathering, so that there will be world peace. We will be the arbiters, we will be objective, we will negotiate all things fairly and equally. Okay, so let us ask the United Nations, who's right, Israel or Gaza? But before we get into that little um, mess, let's sort of look at the history. As you know, the United Nations has two parts to it. There's the General Assembly and the Security Council. The General Assembly is made up of 185 countries. These are all of the countries in the world. Each country has one vote. And this is the part where they deliberate, where they debate, where they discuss. The more significant part of the United Nations is the Security Council. The Security Council is made up of five permanent members and ten rotating members. The five permanent members are the superpowers of the world. The ten rotating members are all of those 185 countries who are eligible. They rotate for the seats. So let me share with you an interesting fact that you might not be aware of. Of the 185 countries in the United Nations, there is one country that is not eligible to sit on the Security Council. Out of all of them, there is one country that is considered so evil, so heinous, so immoral, that it is not allowed by United Nations doctrine to be a part of the Security Council. Now, let me give you the IQ test. Is it Iraq, Iran, Cuba, anybody from Libya? How about North Korea? They kill lots of people, like, you know, all the time, right? How about Sudan, Syria? Come on, 150,000 dead? Now, each of those seven nations... The U.S. State Department calls sponsors of terrorism, and every one of them are eligible to sit on the Security Council. Of the 185 nations of the world, there's only one that is ineligible to sit on the Security Council. That is the State of Israel. Hmm, that's interesting. But let's look at the voting record, because this is a little eye-opening. As you know, the United Nations has one good friend to Israel that's called the United States of America. And in the Security Council, because the United States has a veto power, so their voting record is not that bad as against Israel. From the formation of the United Nations until 1990, 1990 means before the Intifada, before we had the real problem that we have now. This is pre the current situation, right? The voting record of the Security Council from its formation until 1990, went something as follows. There were 175 resolutions. That means 175 times they voted to reach a certain maskana, a certain conclusion. Of the 175 resolutions, 97 were directed against Israel. 78 against the rest of the world. The whole world only got 78. 97 resolutions were directed against Israel. The expressions of the councils were concern, grave concern, regret, deep regret, shock. Those were used about Israel 31 times. Condemnations, which condemned, censored, deplored, strongly deplored against Israel 49 times. The council never condemned, never censored, never deplored the Arabs, not once. Now a little bit of history. There are six odd wars between 1948 and currently, and it really depends on how you count. But not a one of them was started because the Jews decided, we want to kill some Arabs. Not a one of them was decided because we need a little bit of expansion territory. 
Every one of those wars was began because of the Arab belief that the problem in the Middle East is the Jew. And every one of those wars were fought with tremendous bravery for our existence. And after each one, we were condemned and condemned and condemned. But maybe you'll tell me the Security Council is biased. What about the General Assembly? That means 185 nations. They can't all be prejudiced against the Jews. From 1947 to 1989, there were 690 General Assembly resolutions. Again, 690 times the General Assembly met, voted, and made a determination. 429 of them were directed against Israel. 62% rebuilding the Makula. You tell me Israel is so important, so the entire globe. Anyone ever see a picture of the... Um, Middle Eastern countries, 22 big, big countries, and little Israel. You can barely see it. It's the size of New Jersey. There are 7 million people living in Israel. There are 7 billion people on this planet. One-tenth of 1%. And you're telling me the Jews are all of the problems? You're telling me 62% of the world's crisis is all the problems in the world are because of the Jews? I don't know. Anyone ever hear of something called Darfur? How about the Hutus killing the Tutus? How about North Ireland, the Protestants killing the Catholics? How about ethnic cleansing? Now, folks, ethnic cleansing is not when you hire a Polish cleaning girl to you know, clean up your living room or a Mexican to clean up your, your yard. No. Ethnic cleansing is very, very nasty and very, very dirty. It goes like this. I don't like you. You're from a different ethnicity. <laughs> Beheading, cutting off limbs, murder, wholesale. And you'll see the graphic pictures, and you'll see the millions of people who were destroyed, and you're telling me all of the world's problems are the Jews? It's really very strange. But if you're not sure that I'm right, let's look at the current situation a little bit more carefully. It's beautiful to watch CNN. If you want to see a mockery of journalism... If you would like to see the Purim Spiel, 5,774, watch CNN. For that matter, it could be Fox News or it could be, well, almost any other news. But here's how it goes. A made-for-TV documentary piece begins as I walk into Gaza. And you see this long sort of elevated tunnel. I see the barbed wire. I see the isolation. I see the lack of drinking water, electricity only a few hours a day, 50% unemployment, the poverty, everything is broken. And you see him walk around the camps and nebuch, nebuch, nebuch. Now, I'm not a rocket scientist, but I do know that billions of dollars of foreign aid were poured into Gaza. Billions of dollars. They now have 1.8 million people. But listen, no matter how you slice it, Three, four thousand dollars per person or more, you could figure out a way to get food, I think, to get some sort of housing, to get some sort of electrical grid up, some sort of water processing. I think you should be able to, right? But strangely enough, it's not there. Now, you and I understand why it's not. It's because much of those monies were spent on the underground Gaza. But we're not going to get involved in that. We're not going to discuss the absolute imperative need to build things underground. Let's discuss the fact that in the world today, the European Union, much of Europe, much of Western man loves the Palestinians, feels terrible for the poor Nebuch underdog. And let's ask ourselves the question, does it make sense? So to frame this, let me share with you an interesting thought. 
There was a movie made in the old days called Lawrence of Arabia. And that's when they still made movies in black and white. Anyway, Lawrence Olivia starred in that play, in that movie, Lawrence of Arabia. Do you know that in Lawrence of Arabia there was not one single woman who had a speaking part? Not one. Why is it? Because they were depicting the Arab world. And in the Arab world, women don't have a speaking part. Of the 22 nations of the Arab world, how many legitimate democracies are there? Uh, Anyone know the number zero? As in freedom of speech doesn't exist. Right of assembly doesn't exist. Women's suffrage doesn't exist. Right to vote really doesn't exist for men either. Forget women. There isn't a single democracy amongst those 22 nations. But you know that. But what you may not be fully aware of is what's it like to be an Arab living in Israel? What's it like to be an Israeli Arab? So let me share with you. As an Arab living in Israel, you have the right to vote. You have the right to education. You have a right to own a business. You have a right to assembly. You have the right to run for the Knesset because there are invariably there are always Chavri Knesset, members of the Knesset who are Arabs. The only place in the entire Middle East where Arabs have rights is in Israel. Haifa University is 20% or more Arab students, Arab professors, <clears throat> Arab students. You want to go to medical school? It's fine. You can do anything in the Jewish state as an Arab except one thing. You may not kill Jews. Now, I know that's a bit oppressive, and I know that's very restrictive, and I know that's kind of too demanding for a lot of them, but that's the only thing. You you don't even have to serve in Sahel. You don't have to serve in the army. You can have the best life. There's not an Arab in the Arab world who has anything like the opportunity, the freedom to live a life as does an Arab living in Israel. And by the way, in 1948, when the state was formed, there were 156,000 Arabs. And the first thing that the Jews did there were make laws that it's illegal for an employer to discriminate by base of race. And they were invited to serve in senior diplomatic and government positions. The Jews in that land, once they formed the state, did everything in their power to welcome the Arabs and give them every opportunity and every position imaginable. Interestingly enough, when asked, which government do you admire? Which government would you like to be under? 80% of Palestinians openly say Israel. Because it ain't no fun to have your hands cut off because somebody didn't like what you did or what you said. It's no fun to be gunned down because someone doesn't like your religion or your beliefs or that you're a collaborator or whatever it is. So, here's a little question. Israel is the epitome of democracy, rights. It is the most caring, giving country in the world. And you read about Arab atrocities on a daily basis. They write about it. You see movies about it. Go on YouTube. You could see endless carnage that they do one to another. Who's the good guy and who's the bad guy? So, I'm not sure you know. So let me clue you in who are the opponents. In 2006, Hamas was, by a landslide, elected to be the governing force. Now, if you're not sure who Hamas is, Hamas was listed by the United States, the European Union, and others as a terrorist group. But if you don't believe me, their covenant, nerds, their 
Declaration of Independence. They're, they're what they stand for. In it, and it's not that long a document, it's not that well written, 12 times it calls for the eradication of the Jews. It calls for Judgment Day. Our struggle against the Jews is great and serious. It needs all sincere efforts. It's a step which will inevitably be followed by other steps. The movement is one, has to be supported by all Arabs in this vast Islamic world until the enemy is vanquished and Allah's will is realized. The day of judgment will not come until Muslims fight the Jews, killing the Jews. When the Jew will hide behind the stones and the trees, the stones and trees will say, Oh Muslims, oh Abdullah, there is a Jew behind me, come and kill him. Twelve times in their covenant, in their declaration, they claim what their objective is. And even better, the Islamic resistant movement believes that the land of Palestine is an Islamic waf, consecrated, by the way, land of Palestine is um, from river to sea, Jordan River to Mediterranean Sea. You could see this all the time. On their TV programs, Educating the Children, they say, which are the port cities of Palestine? Ashdod, good. Haifa, right. Tel Aviv, excellent. Oh, you forgot one. You see, it's a given that Palestine doesn't mean Gaza, the West Bank. Palestine means from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean. And by the way, this summer it's been a little rough in the Middle East, so many children didn't have a chance to go to summer camp. Would you like to know what summer camp is like in Gaza? Oh, it's normally very, very pretty. You get to have all kinds of training, military training. You get to be taught. Here, here's the program of one of the directors. What do you teach the children? We teach the children the truth. How the Jews persecuted the prophets and tortured them. We stress that the Jews killed and slaughtered Arabs and Palestinians every chance they got. Most important, the children understand that the conflict with the Jews is not over land, but rather over religion. As long as Jews remain here between the Jordan River and the sea, they will be our enemy and will continue to pursue and kill them. And they sing beautiful songs and dance all kinds of dances. But the songs are about bloodshed and the dances are about stomping on Zionist skulls. And it's always touching to watch a white-haired cleric. You know, that's like, a, you know, white-haired, that's the, you know, the teacher. The You know, he's sitting with the children around him, and he's telling stories about the Prophet Muhammad. Now, you and I know that Islam is a religion of peace. My son used to joke, how many pieces? <clears throat> that's only a question of how much how many kilos he could strap around his chest. But <clears throat> Islam is a religion of peace. So we have this white-haired cleric, this Rebbe, teaching the little kindalach. And he looks like a tolerant enough man, and he's speaking nicely to the children, and he's telling stories of the Prophet Muhammad. What's there? What could be wrong with that? Well, it happens to be the story he's telling about a Jewish woman who tried to poison Muhammad. And he turns to the children and says, Children, what do we learn from this? One little seven-year-old raises his hand, <clears throat> I learned that the Jews are people of betrayal and treachery. Those are big words for a seven-year-old to know. But what that seven-year-old, and it doesn't take till seven, is being indoctrinated, is being taught, Allah Akbar, say the words, the most noble thing to do is to die in vanquishing this people. And you could see it from coloring books to textbooks, how do you learn math? You know, as you know, the Palestinians are not so good at math. But how do you teach math in the high school? I have seven Jews, and I killed five. How many are left? No, Mohammed, not three. No, no, not six. Not good. You got the right answer. But I'm not inventing this stuff, and I'm not making it up. 
<laughs> go on the web, just look around. And listen to the videotaped messages of suicide bombers. Just listen to their words. We are a nation that drinks blood. Now keep in mind, they're always fully hooded. You'll never see their face. Anyone know why? <laughs> Not just a coward. The Shin Bet, the Israeli intelligence, are brilliant. Any face that's shown on the internet is memorized, and if a face is shown, that guy knows that two weeks later, two months later, an F-15, X-15 is going to pass, he's going to be bombed out of the sky. They won't show their face in public when they make these declarations, because they know if their picture goes on the internet, their history. In any case, we are a nation that drinks blood. And we know that there's no blood better than the blood of Jews. We will not leave you alone until we've quenched our thirst with your blood and our children's thirst with your blood. We will not leave until you leave the Muslim countries. That's a nice one. Here's another one. Mumin Rajab Avu Has. i got to scratch my throat every time I say his name. There we go. This is published on Hamas's website. You can go on the website. I'm not just inventing this up. In the name of Allah, we will destroy you, blow you up, take revenge against you, purify the land of you pigs that have defiled our country. This operation is revenge against the sons of monkeys and pigs. I dedicate this wedding, that's his death, to Allah. To all those who have chosen Allah as their goal. One after another, after another, Israeli intelligence says now in Gaza, there are 3,000 suicide bombers who have signed up, who said goodbye to their parents, waiting for the opportunity to blow themselves up to kill a, for the opportunity to maybe kill a Jew. Alright, but we're still not clear who's the good guys and who are the bad guys. I don't got it yet. <laughs> Let's focus a little bit. 2001 to 2008, before the current crisis, before Operation Cast Lead, any of this stuff, right? Here we go. <clears throat> the Israeli government press office in Jerusalem keeps track of how many missiles were fired. So, between 2001 and 2008, 10,000 missiles were fired from Gaza into Israel. 10,000. Not 10, not even 30, not 100, 10,000. But that's not war. That's just 10,000 missiles attempting to maim, wound, kill innocent people. Do you know probably the only place in the world where it's forbidden to wear seatbelts is Sterot? Why is it forbidden there? Because the missiles are so close to Aza, and they come so quick that if you're seatbelted in, you might not be able to get out of your car fast enough. So there's an ordinance, you are not allowed to wear a seatbelt in Sterot, 94% of the children have post-traumatic stress disorder because it's a constant barrage, day after day after day after day. What the entire Israel has now experienced for a month was going on for years in Sterot. Hmm. I'm not sure I get it. Okay, so now we have a situation where the entire Israel is fair game. What is the crime of Israel, in case you don't know? It is occupation and blockade. We occupy their land. Now, folks, in 2005 was the removal. Arik Sharon removed every last Jew from Aza, forcibly taking out 8,000 Jews who were living there, giving over the hothouses, giving over the fields. Aza has been completely Yudin free of Jews since 2005, 2006, the latest. So what does occupation mean? What is our sin of occupation? It clearly is not within their region. And of course, the other sin that we're guilty of is blockade. And you know what that means? We are blocking the transferring of more missiles along the Mediterranean into, um, into Gaza. By the way, anyone know where the electricity in Gaza comes from? Israel. Oh, oh. Interesting. Anyone know where the water well, it was coming from a long time until it just got outrageous? 
Israel. Okay, anyway, bottom line is, missile after missile after missile over the entire land of Israel. We're talking hundreds and hundreds of missile. And Israel says, you're, you're out of it. This is outrageous. This is out of control. And they begin firing back. The world outcry, if you would hear, is tremendous. It's non-proportional. It's unfair. Look at the civilians being killed. What are you doing? What kind of evil are you involved in? Okay, folks, let me take you back in history a little bit. Potsdam, 1945. Churchill, Roosevelt, and Stalin are having a major meeting. You see, Germany already had surrendered. World War II should have been over, but the Japanese were not giving in. And estimates showed that there would be at least one million Allied servicemen who would be killed in the oncoming years. It was clear that the Allies would win, but it would be a bloody mess. It would cost the lives of one million soldiers. Churchill, Stalin, and Roosevelt sat down to meet on this decision. Do we use atomic weaponry? And they made the following decision. If they don't stop, they're going to cause such bloodshed, such cost. We're going to warn them. We're going to counsel them. We're going to tell them what we're going to do, and it will be their choice. In fact, the Japanese didn't surrender, so two modern cities, Nagasaki and Hiroshima, were leveled. At least 300,000 civilians were instantly killed, Half a million homeless, the destruction was indescribable. Entire cities, two modern cities, were flattened, were leveled. Is that proportionate? Is that nice? Look at all those men, women, and children. Look at them. Why are you doing that? They're so innocent. Folks, there was an overwhelming majority that voted for Hamas. They did not take power by force. They were voted in. That means the common folk in Gaza voted, yes, we want them to be our leaders. The Palestinian Authority is not radical enough. They're not strong enough. We want Hamas. You lose your claim of innocence when you vote those people in. Okay, so we get it, folks. Who's the good guy and who's the bad guy? Well, let's turn to Time Magazine. Reminiscent of the dark ages of different places in the world in the 1930s. That's describing the Israel government. <clears throat> Toronto Sun, the final solution campaign against the Palestinians. Eric Margolis, we have to thank for that. CBS is the early show. The Prime Minister of Israel is a racist, a terrorist, a murderous war criminal. Hmm. <clears throat> CNN, now this is really interesting. <clears throat> CNN tells us that Israel still occupies the Gaza Strip. Idiot, they left Years ago, nine years ago they left. What do you mean they occupy? You can't find an Israeli soldier, an Israeli, an Israeli citizen you'll find. He'll be stoned to death. But until you guys got out of control, there wasn't a single Jew in Aza. What are you carping about? Harper Magazine now says Israel practices ethnic cleansing. Lancet Medical Journal. Now, I love it when doctors... Opinion, you know, about the world's... Okay. Seven quotes. Lancet is one of the most prestigious British medical journals. An open letter for the people of Gaza. Gaza is being killed by one of the most largest and most sophisticated modern military machines. Wow, Israel from 7 million people. You know, you have, you have America, you have Canada, you have China, you have, you have huge, huge armies. Israel has sophical 5.5 million Jews. The largest army. Okay, fine. Anyway, they're being killed. <laughs> this is a military onslaught on civilians in Gaza. These attacks aim to terrorize. We witness target weaponry used indiscriminately and on children. Indiscriminately and on children. 
Are you aware of how sophisticated those Jews are? Okay, you know that the New York Times coined a phrase, it's called knocking on the door. What that means is each attack, each bombing is targeted exactly. They can tell you the guy's DNA. They can tell you his address. They can tell you what he had for breakfast. And they target exactly his house, exactly where he's going to be, but they don't just destroy the building. What they do first is they call hundreds if not thousands of cell phones. Now, how Israel has every square block down that they're able to call the cell phones of that immediate area is astonishing. But if the building is right over here, then all of the neighbors are going to get a phone call. Hi, we're going to blow up the building. Please disappear. How do you know there's not? How do you know myself? Like, I'd be, if I were a Fatah member of Hamas, I'd be terrified. Okay, first comes the phone call, and then comes the knock on the door. The knock on the door is an explosive, but it doesn't have destructive capacity. Makes a big noise. You're supposed to run out, right? So what happens? And if you don't believe me, watch the footage. They get the phone call. Hey, Muhammad, Ahmad, come on, let's go. All come here. The knock on the door, they all gather on the rooftop. Because when CNN sees dead civilians, it's great. It makes great television. It makes great footage. You see the Israeli murderers. And if you think I'm inventing this, read a book called David and Goliath, The Media Bias. You don't really have to look that far, but just read a little bit, and you'll find something astonishing. Look on Newsmap. Google has something called Newsmap. You know what Newsmap tells you? What issues are being talked about right now? World Soccer Cup is over, guys, right? Ebola is pretty cool, but hey, let's get done with... What is the single most talked about country in the universe? Israel. Israel. Of the 185, 7 million out of 7 billion, this little sliver of a country the size of New Jersey, amongst this huge landmass, is spoken about in the news over and over and over and over. But here's the interesting part. Do you know that this month, there were other things in the world other going on other than Israel killing innocent men, women, and children? Do you know what was happening in Pakistan? Well, in the month of July, 1,600 civilians were murdered. You know what happened in, uh, oh, uh, anyone ever, we're not getting to Syria yet, wait, wait, wait. How about Iraq? 1,500 in Iraq in July. How about 150,000 Arabs have been killed in Syria since the civil war began? Okay, so here's the cash I got. Question number one is, how can the world be so dumb? How can they be so blind? How can they be so foolish? I'm not talking about the Arabs. I'm talking about England. I'm talking about France. I'm talking about Iceland. I'm talking about neutral countries. I'm even talking about the President of the United States of America. So if you would like to understand what's really going on, I'll explain to you very, very simply. In the 1950s, there was a ventriloquist whose name was Ricky Lane. Ricky Lane had a little dummy. He would go on stage and all the... And there is nightclubs, and he was a very well-known performer. And the name of his little dummy was Velvel. And Velvel had quite a sharp tongue on him. And Ricky Lane would stand there and play the straight guy, and little Velvel would be on his lap, and little Velvel would lace out all of his very sharp, funny lines. Anyway, in the 1950s, Ricky Lane was playing in the Coco Cabana, which was a nightclub, which was, uh, you know, there were 
pretty strong ties to gangsters, etc. There, anyway, in the front row were some really big time gangsters. One of them actually was the owner of the club, Jules Powell, who was a tough guy. Anyway, so Ricky Lane gets up there with Velvel, and Velvel says to one of the gangsters in the front, "Hey, it looks like you slept in your clothes. <laughs> hey, don't you make any money?" <laughs> Turns to one of the other gangsters in front. Whoa, your mother dresses you funny. <laughs> line after line, Velvel is ranking out these gangsters. Well, Jules Powell, who's in the front row, gets up on stage, walks over to Ricky Lane, takes his fist, and smashes Velvel, knocks his head off, rolls on the floor. He says to the head, one more crack out of you and I'll kill you. Get it? Oh, <sighs> If you get angry at the United Nations, if you have no tolerance for the rhetoric of CNN or New York Times, you're making a fundamental error. You're talking to a wooden dummy. These are shlichim. There's a puppeteer who's pulling the strings. These are not normal times. These are not normal consequences. These are not normal things. The United Nations does not vote so unanimously against one country. It doesn't happen in the annals of history. It never happened that one sliver of a country became so prominent, so focused, so <clears throat> in the eye of everything. And it never happened that any country was demanded the demands of Israel. No one understands. It's not the UNN. It's not CNN. It's not the President of the United States of America. There's a puppeteer. Hagarish Baruch is pulling the strings. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize what's going on. My friends, it is very, very frightening times we live in. You look at the af v'chema, the fury of what's going on. You look at the unbalance. You look at the 1.6 billion Muslims out there, only 30% of whom would rather drink your blood for breakfast than eat Cheerios. But no one understands that we are back in our land a nation that has suffered through 1,900 years of exile. We are keeping the same mitzvahs that our forefathers kept, learning the same Torah, back in our land, rebuilding our dynasty, one step away. One step away. But that step sometimes is a very big step. You see, after 1967, there was a conclusion that the Israeli populace, as well as maybe world Jewry, reached. All of our respect to the fighting forces. Now, folks, it is true. An awful lot of akarasatov, of respect and recognition, goes to our soldiers who fight on our behalf. But that's not the message. In 1973, the war was a lot harder. And after the Yom Kippur War, you saw the bumper stickers were not kolakavod letzal. It was directed towards Hashem. And the conclusions of the streets was to Hashem. My friends, when you see picture after picture, and you see Chayalim wearing tefillin and tzitzits, and when you see them davening, when you hear their words as they're about to enter in, no one understands they're fighting a war. It's a war against Jews, not because we have big noses and not because we own banks. It's a war against Jews because we represent Hashem, and this is the very last stages. We're back in our land. And there is a tremendous resurgence of Torah study. There is everything ready for Mashiach to come We're one step away. How that last step happens, how quickly and how painfully or painlessly is up to us if we finally get it. 
if we finally understand that everything turns beautifully in a heartbeat, like a brilliant sun at midday, every Gentile runs for cover, every enemy of Yisrael runs and hides, and we enter our land in peace forever. If we don't, it can be very, very damaging and very devastating. But I want to close with one thought. Anyone know the stats? Anyone pay attention? If you, if you play baseball, if you watch baseball, you have to know statistics, right? Baseball is a game of statistics. Well, military affairs are also today a game of statistics. Let's play the stats. Okay. How many <clears throat> rockets were shot in the last month-long campaign from Gaza into Israel? Stats? <clears throat> okay, it's over 3,000. Okay, let's give it 3,000. Okay, <clears throat> but Baruch Hashem... We have the Iron Dome. The Iron Dome is a missile defense system, missile to missile, 90% effective. 90% of the missiles that are shot by the Iron Dome are successful, take down the incoming missile. Pretty impressive, right? Here's the problem. Each Iron Dome missile that's shot costs between $50,000, $60,000, maybe more. Very, very pricey little missile. So you can only shoot them when you absolutely, positively have to. So what they do is they only use the iron defense system when it's clear that the missile is coming directly onto a populated area. Okay. How many times was the iron dome system used? Well, the answer is, in this little affair, 552 times. That means 2,500 rockets went nowhere near anyone. Didn't come near a populated area. Anyone ever been to Israel? I mean, lots and lots of shkuno, lots and lots of blood. I mean, you have, how could you miss? 2,500 out of 3,000 have no connection to any populated area. They fall in fields. They fall, like, even if you're, if you're aiming wrong, if you put a four-year-old, he could do a better job than that. All right, whatever. I don't know. You know, everyone knows that story on the internet. You know, <clears throat> Hamas leader says, yeah, we aim, but their God aims it the other way. All right, fine. I don't know if it's true. But one thing for sure, it's mighty funny. But let's analyze the other percentage. You see, 552 missiles were actually taken out of the sky because the Iron Dome is 90% effective. Um, uh oh, I'm no mathematician, but if it's 90% effective, that means 10% of the time it doesn't work. That means of those hundreds of missiles that are directly targeted to populated areas, 10% of them are not taken out by the Iron Dome system. That means at least 50 missiles were direct hits on populated areas. How many Jews were directly killed by missiles? Anyone know the number? The actual number is zero. One woman had a heart attack running out. In one case, there wasn't a single fatality as a direct result of a missile falling. Huh. Makes you kind of wonder a bit, don't you? 2,500 missiles hit empty fields. 550 are taken out by the dome, and at least 50 are directly focused, heading right to a center populated area, and somehow it doesn't work. Okay, so here's an Iron Dome operator who describes what happened in some of those times when the Iron Dome failed. And this is the story. Now, by the way, to operate an Iron Dome is a very, very mukhubad, very kavadika position. you got to be up there. And the Israeli military, that's considered, I mean, people treat you with great honor. Okay, anyway, here's the story. Uh, one of the Iron Dome operators, commander, recall what happened was like this. A missile was fired from Gaza. The Iron Dome precisely calculated its trajectory. He explains that we 
we know where these missiles are going to fall down to a radius of 200 meters, meaning they plan it and plot it, and they know within a 200 meter radius exactly where it's going to fall. And he said, this missile was either going to hit the Israeli towers, the Kiria, or the central Tel Aviv railway station. They immediately sent a call to the Magen David Adom. Even though they knew they would take it out of the sky, you can't take a chance because we're dealing with hundreds upon hundreds of people. We fired the first interceptor, and it missed. We fired the second interceptor, and it missed. This is very rare. I was in shock. It never happens. At this point, we had just four seconds until the missile lands. We were notified Magin David Adom. We knew there would be mass casualty. And suddenly, the Iron Dome, which calculates wind speeds, amongst other things, showed a major wind coming from the east, a strong wind that sent the missile into the sea. We were all stunned. I stood up and shouted, There is a God. Folks, it's not from hundreds of years ago. It's not from the Chumash. It's not from the Gemara. Our day and age, you'll see Nisim, Nais after Nais. The fact that Israel is the center of the world's eye. The fact that Israel is so hated. The fact that you can't walk in the streets of Coney Island Avenue today, and certainly not France and England. That's the Yad Hashem telling us that we have a job, we have a mission, and we're heading in the right direction, but we have to take those last few steps. May HaKadosh Baruch Hu redeem us. May this, last, may this be the last tissue above that we sit on the floor. May HaKadosh Baruch Hu redeem us finally. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.